everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caw, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet, currently sweltering away in the Pacific Northwest, the one and only TJ. Yeah, I don't think we're built for uh, 106 degree weather oh out my here. God, hideous. <laughs> hideous. And like, Especially up there. You guys are really not ready. Oh, yeah. We we went and had breakfast this morning and like there's old people checking in with the bartender to be like, yeah, I'm OK. I got a window air conditioner. I'm just going to close all my blinds and hide out in my bedroom for the rest of the day. Right. <laughs> oh shit well we'll power through this hopefully you do not yeah get heat exhaustion in the process no no my office is the warmest spot in the house and it's probably 75 in here so i'll oh, that sounds that actually sounds perfect anyway enough of that <laughs> let's talk about the dark tower plan for this episode we are going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about wizard and glass part four all god's chillin got shoes chapter one kansas in the morning and chapter two shoes in the road and then we'll close out the show with our listener question that we did not get to get to last time we did get some more answers so we'll be able to to dig into that all right now before we do any of that dj what is our spoiler policy on this podcast <laughs> uh, so you know we're gonna um basically take out our saw blade and play some knife music for you anytime we cross <laughs> the the threshold of the thinny that is the spoiler zone oh uh, <laughs> so dj where did we last leave off all right so um susan gets burned at the stake in a method and, and manner that i had completely forgotten and somehow yeah. thought of as a completely different thing Uh, So that happened, Um, and Roland finishes his story, Uh and we zoom back to Kansas in the present day, and everybody, like, uh, Stephen King basically spends a bunch of time uh, with these characters going back and forth between each other, like, do you feel like that was a long time? No, it wasn't a long time. Do you feel like that was a long time? No, it wasn't a long time. (laughs) Stories, like, go a long ways in my world. Uh, You know, they they hold time differently. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, fine, you know. (laughs) We get it, Stephen King. No time passed. Thanks Mm -hmm. for beating us up with it. And then, like, Roland, as he pulls out, you sort of get this feeling that he's super relieved, but also um, intensely sad for his choices and the things is, that he's uh, done as a youth, and like he pours water over himself, and the drinking motion is sort of like ancillary to the fact that the water is sort of like cleansing him as mm-hmm. the gang kind of watches him, and uh, it, it's just a, a moment of reflection as everybody kind of like realizes that Roland just finally spilled the beans on these things that they've always wanted to hear. And yeah, you got four stars here, so uh, obviously there's more to say. You've kind of covered, actually covered a lot of it, but we finish the story and we get this reminder that we had uh, halfway through the book that something magical happened, essentially, that the night lasted, it dilated long enough for him to be able to tell his story. And and even though they have supposedly sat there all night wide awake, they all feel strangely refreshed and not like they would have had they stayed up all night. And I kind of think that goes to the sort of, I don't know about the thesis of the book, but one of the major motifs of this book is about how there is magic in storytelling. It's constantly referencing other literary works with our 
references to Romeo and Juliet, and we're going to get into Wizard of Oz, and metaphorically, but also like specifically contextually, like in the text, he references other literary things, which we're going to do a lot of. That's kind of the theme of this chapter. And Susanna reinforces this by saying how that it's not just something that happens in in his world, but it, it's something that happens in all worlds, essentially. Like, the power of storytelling to make you lose track of time, or in this case, for time to actually be altered by the storytelling. And we get a very specific reference to a, another literary work, which is Christmas Carol, when Jake says that the spirits have done all in a single night, which obviously speaks to what they just spoke about, but it's also a story about a man who is looking back at the events of his life and how those events have shaped him into the man that he is now, which sounds very familiar to what we've been experiencing throughout this entire book, right? Because it's all about how Roland's experience and mages helped to shape him into the person that he is now. And it's also a little bit kind of hopeful if you think about it, because even though Scrooge starts the book in this very dark place, this very selfish place where he is consumed by the obsession of uh, increasing his wealth and he's so greedy. I mean, you could see some parallels there to, to Roland's desire to find the tower. But ultimately, Scrooge comes away from that story a changed man for the better. And so I do think that we get a lot of foreboding about like what the future is going to be like. All your friends are going to die. This will destroy you. You're going to become a beast within the process of of attaining the tower. You're going to do so many horrible things that there'll be no humanity left in you. Is constantly these negative reinforcing ideas about what this journey is doing to Roland. And so for me, this is that one of the rare instances where I kind of feel like. If we're if he's Scrooge, then that means they're in that allegory, then maybe there is some hope for Roland. You know, maybe he won't be broken by this. Maybe <clears throat> even though this is a really painful story, the telling of it actually is gonna help him to grow as a person. Yeah, and maybe. I mean, that's the Scrooge moral of the story is like reflection right. made him realize that he's he's bad, he needs to change his ways. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you talked about how he kind of cleanses himself in the water. And I think that you're right. He doesn't just drink the water, but he bathes his face in it. And he's feeling very spiritually and emotionally dirty after this story. And I think that there's some of the washing of his face is that. But there's the idea of putting cold water in your face to calm you down. And I ended up looking into this because I was trying to see if there was any symbolism. And there's scientific basis for why you splash your face with cold water when you're when you're anxious, why it works. What? Has, really? Yes, I know. I know. That's, That's cool. That I was surprised too. So it has something to do with the way that your body prepares for if you're diving into water. So the cold water being splashed in your face while you hold your breath activates something in you that like a survival instinct in you. Not consciously, but what it does is it makes the blood in your body go towards the core of your body. So it protects your organs and prepares you for holding your breath. And what happens is it slows your heart rate and that causes you to feel calm. Hmm. So that whole splashing water in your face is not just something they do in movies. It actually works. And so I know (laughs) the more, you know, like I wasn't expecting to come away from this podcast with that little nugget of knowledge. (laughs) That was my exact feeling. I was like, well, I didn't expect to learn that today. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's what I have. All right. So, uh, you know, 
they the gang sort of like finds their their position and like everybody's like getting up from this long story uh going to the bathroom um susan goes uh gets set down i guess they like carry her to behind the the area where they're using the restroom and like just drop her off for a minute and then like roland goes to use the restroom mm-hmm. and i i didn't understand what was funny when he's like i'll use the last of of the whatever of the necessity I think he says he's gonna go use the remedial I didn't get it because like Jake's laughing and I'm like well maybe that was supposed to be funny and I just don't understand what that's about and so I was actually planning on asking you hey Rachel what does that mean when you take you take remedial classes if you're experiencing learning difficulties so like maybe he was like I'm gonna go use the remedial bathroom like he doesn't know how to go to the bathroom I don't know (laughs) (laughs) that's the best I could come up with because I also was like I don't get the joke yeah, I didn't. I didn't laugh. Didn't know what it meant. Didn't understand I think, it. I think. I think that's it. I think that's the joke. Okay. Well, if, if someone out there wants to pony up an explanation for that one, I would love to hear it because I don't know what was funny about that. Okay. Um, and, and so then, while Roland's going to use the restroom, uh, Susan sort of talks with Eddie, and she's you know emotionally distraught about this story, and Eddie kind of weirdly is like, "Oh no, no, it's this is." This is a relief, you know? He's like, it's like uh, when the chickens walk into Chewy Chicken and someone runs out saying, like, Chewy Chicken is people, and they're like, oh, cool, now I can eat here. You know, it's like, he's right. like, no, Roland didn't actually um, kill her, you know? Like, so he's not as as bad as we thought he might be. And, like, Susan's like, no, man, you don't you don't get it. He, mm-hmm. he may as well have because his hubris is what led him to, like, let Susan die. He mm. basically by neglecting his duties and paying attention to the ball and not paying attention to what the ball was showing him in whole, he neglected Susan and thereby let her die. And like the reaction he got from Roland in the previous section basically showed that he did actually regret Susan's death immensely, despite his like younger person being like, she'll be fine. She'll live her own life, whatever, whatever. Like Uh he has some emotional attachment still to this day, even years and years and years later about those events. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that was kind of poignant. Um, You got three stars here. So I'm throwing it back to you, Rachel. Sure. So I think this really shows, well, first of all, how affected that Susanna and Eddie both were by this story. Susanna cries uh, once they get away from Roland. And Eddie doesn't ask her why she's crying because he feels the same way himself. He's not, he, he wanted to cry himself. But I also think it speaks to the different ways that each of them understand and feel about Roland. Or at least think about Roland. Susan gets him on a much more intuitive and emotional level and understands that Roland carries that burden of that guilt that you're talking about, about Susan's death, that he holds himself responsible. He blames himself for it, whether he did it himself or uh, whether he, he did it by accident or incidentally. Eddie, on the other hand, is just like concretely like he didn't kill her. I'm so relieved. But he also, when he was listening to that story, his feelings about Roland, his interpretation of Roland's character is that he thought that that story was going to end up with him having killed Susan. And so I think that you can really see how they both have very different, and what Jake is going to come into this a minute and then we'll get into like a more Freudian place with it. But I think you, you get a reminder because we've been away from these characters for a really long time, 
how their relationships differ with Roland and how their perceptions of Roland differ. And I think you can also see real comparisons here to Elaine and Bert, right? That there is a lot of Elaine and Susan and there's a lot of Bert and, and Eddie. And of course, we get another literary reference here. One of, uh, Like I said, this is sort of the repeating motif throughout these two chapters is these references to other literary works. And it's a callback to Romeo and Juliet when he says, a rose is a rose is a rose, which I know is also a Gertrude Stein quote, but it is in reference to uh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and you just got me thinking about roses and how I think they're the loose flower. <laughs> Oh, no. You know, now whenever I see a rose, I now immediately think about you and your hatred of roses. <laughs> They're just so tacky. They're tacky flowers. They're, they're like the most generic, like everybody references a beautiful flower and they point at a rose and you're just like, really, there are so many cooler flow- flowers yeah, out there. Stargazer lilies are the best flowers. Yep. They're this so pretty. Is, you got lilies. You got like the uh, trumpeter vines. You got all mm-hmm. kinds of cool stuff. And then like. Mm-hmm we chose roses to represent all of this stuff. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that, why I, I would be curious. Like, I feel like there's some sort of like big rose industry. They're like, no, like <laughs> dying. Like, you know what I mean? Like this is I, the Debar or whatever of roses. Yes, like exactly. Some, some diamond fiend that's out there. Only roses. Yes, exactly. Hmm. I think hmm. I, I smell a conspiracy. <laughs> all right what happens next all right friend? so they sit down uh for dinner and like already um you can tell that like even though the story's over uh susan and the gang are, are gonna want roland to like kind of tie up some loose ends and we find out that um that that kind of zombie roland we got towards the end of his story uh was roland in the wizard's class Sort of, but Roland makes this reference to the fact that everybody sort of has a wizard's class in their mind mm-hmm. and they can go there and, you know, float in it or what have you. And I guess like the trauma of this experience and Roland going into that zone, like was really just him sitting in his own head, like dwelling on all of the things and not really uh, paying attention to the outside world, like maybe a form of madness or you know, mental illness or something like that, where mm-hmm. he's just stuck in that for a while. And he reveals that basically uh, he's, he only gets three more visions out of this ball. And yeah. one of the visions is Stephen King's like, I wrote all this and he told this story from all these perspectives. I need an out. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, he's like, I'm going to write it here. I looked into the ball and in a mean spirited way, the ball showed me all the things that were going on in the town during that entire episode so that I could see all the things that went wrong. And like, it's actually good writing in the fact that Stephen King points out that the, the ball isn't doing this as a help or a benefit to anybody, yeah. but as a way to hurt and emotionally traumatize mm-hmm. Roland. And he also explains that the reason the ball went dark to begin with is because it basically knew that there wasn't anything else it could get out of him during that time because he'd lost Susan and that had, it it tapped his emotional well. Yeah. And so you sort of get the feeling that like the ball is feeding off of those, um, those emotional reactions. Yeah. It feeds off pain and suffering. Like that is what it lives on. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of cool, and I'm glad we finally got 
a, a well-rounded <laughs> explanation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well played. <laughs> I've been saving that one for a while. That was good. That was good. <laughs> you deployed it very smoothly, too. <laughs> I couldn't help break it into laughter. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Sorry for the dad jokes, guys. No, gals. I love it. Um, I love it. So uh, so we find that out. And then um, basically uh, Roland and the gang take it back to um, – to their father but roland doesn't hand it over to him right away and like uh bert and elaine are like hey dude um you've had this long enough yeah uh, now's the time and like there's as roland describes the interaction like roland's like i'll do it tomorrow and you guys can come with and they're like no 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 you don't need to put that on us like we're not that worried that you're not gonna do it and right. then, like, Roland goes on to describe the fact that when his dad opens the bag that the ball is in, like, he is completely shocked and, like, basically wordless as he stares into it for a while and then it has to, like, think about it for a while afterwards. Yeah. And then we also find out that his mother um, got sent off to, like, I don't know if it's a nunnery or a place. Like, yeah, they describe it, it as a place where she can go to think. Mm-hmm. But... I, I'm not 100% sure what that's about. It was a subtle little side note, but something I thought yeah. was really important. And I wanted to ask you if you knew anything more ab- about that. Nothing I can talk about this week. Son of a- <laughs> <laughs> oh but, but I will tell you that your instincts are correct, that it, that, that is an important detail. So I can then- confirm. I can confirm that you're on the right path, but I can't tell you what path that is. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, um, did anybody ever confirm if the the, uh, the ball thing that I remembered happened somewhere? Uh, I haven't gotten any. I mean, I haven't I haven't heard anything yet. Okay, okay. Then I, I will. Yet. I will leave that one alone because n- now my my spider senses are tingling. Are they tingling? You got yeah, a little, little tinglage? Okay, a little tinglage right. there. Um, okay, so <laughs> we also find out that. Um, uh, there was an assassination attempt on Roland's father, and like, yes. there's this special knife that's dipped in some kind of poison, and the poison is so intense that just a small nick will kill you. And um, a singer that's coming into the court that happens to be the nephew of what Farson, I think. Yes. Yep. Yeah, um, is smuggling that knife into the court to hand it off to whoever. Um, is going to be the assassin and Roland mm-hmm. sees that in the ball and uh, the assassination doesn't end up happening. But for some reason, Roland keeps secret the person who is to kill his father, um, which is interesting and probably a uh, underlined three times so that we yeah <laughs> think yeah. about that in the future as well. Yeah. I mean, um, it's reinforced by the fact that Susanna seems to know. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we start to kind of drift a little bit into the description of the third time he saw the ball and like flying through uh, the air in like a purple tornado and that he saw some shoes. Yes. And like, this is a moment where you have to stop and realize like for the longest time when Stephen King took to describing the content and Roland sort of being outside of it, Mm-hmm. like in this sort of psychic way 
for the longest time, I took that to mean that basically Roland wasn't part of their psychic bond. He was just off to the side of it, sort of like ancillarily attached to it. But with this description, I think I'm completely wrong. I, I think this is like more of Roland is in the middle of it, but it's sort of like the difference in language from 150 years ago to today. Like mm -hmm. they are sharing experiences from like a time and portion of the world that is so alien to Roland that even though it makes perfect sense to them, Roland just doesn't get it because he doesn't have the cultural reference to pull yes. on those threads. Yep. And, and so the blindness that we had previously thought was like, Roland not fully immersing himself in the quartet is actually Roland just not understanding the cultural implications of the descriptions and the sort of inside jokes as as it may be yep. between the group. Nope. And because of that lack of understanding of uh, cultural context, he is basically stonewalled in those things because the way they're describing him or the way they're thinking about him does not make sense to him. Right. I think that that's true. I think he's a little bit of an outsider and a lot of it has to do with like what you would consider like a psychic language. Right. Yeah, like he, exactly. He can pick up a word or two here and there. Like when I put on a uh, Spanish language, something like I know a little bit of Spanish, so I'll pick up a word here and there. And like, sometimes I can context clue it together, but overall, most of it, like any nuance is going to go over my head. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Well, the word one's really fun because if you ever have to dive back into etymology and like figure uh -huh. out where the root of a word comes from. Yeah, yeah. You're like, by the time you get to its origins and like going OE style, you're, you don't recognize the sentence structure because English right. language is drafted so differently from that point to today that it yeah. just doesn't even – I mean, you can pick it up and kind of understand it, but right. the context for all of that is just completely lost. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see. Yeah, like there's there's similar words, but yeah, the sentence structure is so different. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, so um, let's see. We talked about that. Um, and so basically, as he's describing this this flying around in the, in the, the ball in his last vision, um, you know, Jake like starts crackling – you know, like, I'll get you, my pretty, you know, like, Wizard of Oz stuff. And the rest of the gang all gets it immediately. And Roland is like, what? Yeah. What? what? And it's sort of funny because, like, they all immediately are like, of course, you know, like, uh, everybody knows that. But, like, well, let's, Roland let's doesn't. Let's pause because I think you're getting a little ahead of us right now. <laughs> so before we go too much further, though, let's just talk a little bit about what happens here. So... When they return from their little bathroom break, Roland is visibly in emotional pain. And it's interesting to see how we've seen him vulnerable with them because, like, physically he was sick. or, uh, But he's always kind of been a little more guarded emotionally. And here we see him being very vulnerable with them. And Eddie is super distressed by seeing someone as sort of stoic and strong as Roland be so visibly upset and he but he doesn't really know what to do whereas jake immediately steps in and hugs roland and we talked about you know who in the quartet is who from you know because there's similarities and mirroring between these two quartets jake is definitely susie because he's the person that connects with roland like on a heart level 
each of Roland's quartet really does speak to a different aspect of his character, his heart, his mind, and his darkness. And and I think, you, you know, mind is obviously Susan or Susanna, heart is Jake, and his darkness is Eddie. And that's not to say that he doesn't, you know, Eddie doesn't love him or care about him, but he can see that side. He can see and understand that side of Roland in ways that the other two can't. And so... I started thinking about three of them and how they each understand him in different ways. And I realized it also kind of slots into the id, the ego and the super ego, which are you familiar with those? Vaguely the like internal you and, and like your core um, thinking it's like some psychiatric stuff, right? Yeah. So it's a, it's a, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> no, totally. It's a psychoanalytic theory by Sigmund Freud. And it's basically the different parts of our mind. There's the id, which is like the primitive side. It's instinctual. It is about desires and unbound desires. And that I think is Eddie, right? He understands the obsession and the darkness and the desire that comes with Roland's quest for the tower but he also understands how that can like translate into darker aspects of his personality this the super ego is sort of the moral conscience it is your moral compass and it's like the one that's kind of critical and is constantly thinking about if something is right or wrong and i think in this case that would definitely be susan and then there is the ego, which is the part of you that mediates between your desire and what you need to do that is like all about heart. And that would be Jake. And so in some ways, his quartet, even though they are totally autonomous individual people, they also really do reflect the mind of Roland. And we can learn a lot about who Roland is based on why these are the three types of people that he has now twice surrounded himself with. Is this like the, um, what's that Pixar movie that's really sad where you're like you're oh, inside the girl's head? Uh, Inside Out. Inside Out, yep. Mm -hmm. yep that's, yeah, that's... it's like that. Yeah. Hmm. Definitely. I, I guess I wouldn't have thought of it that way. That's that's interesting. Um, I, I do want to go back as your description of Eddie reminded me, I forgot to touch on this, is uh, <laughs> there's a heroin joke in here. Yeah, um, of course. It's Eddie. Yeah, and it's like... Um, Damn it, I pulled on the thread and then I lost my own thread. Um, so what was it, though? Do you remember? Because now I've forgotten. Well, I know it, when Roland's describing oh. something and Eddie's just like, yeah, that reminds me of when I used okay, to do okay. heroin. So that's that's it. Um, so it's back when they're first waking up from the story. And, like, Eddie's description is, is basically, like, you know how um, you can be sore or worn out? After a while, you get used to being sore and worn out because, you know, you do heroin all the time and you just wake up miserable every day. And then the one day you don't wake up miserable, you feel like you might be getting sick or something. Mm -hmm. And like I, that was apt with the beginning of this or the end of the storytelling, because it's like he was basically saying, like, I feel like that today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I feel like I did do heroin today. And like that's interesting because like this whole trip was is sort of back to Roland's heroin, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I don't know. I I wanted to make sure to bring that up, and then I brought it up in the wrong place. So, uh, I don't know. Do what you, you will fine. with it. <laughs> no, I mean, I liked that moment. I thought it was, yeah, it was uh, it was funny because Roland's kind of 
being grumpy with him, but also mm. is kind of making a joke. Like, yeah, everything reminds you of that. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the visions really quickly. I think you covered those really well. The things I want to point out are just that, like you, we said, the ball feeds on pain and that all, and Roland says that all of the remaining balls are evil. So I don't know if we're going to see any more, but keep that in mind in case we do, because mm -hmm. clearly they're all evil. And we find out that he learns that the fall of Gilead is inevitable, that everything they had done, everything they had sacrificed, everything that they have gone through, all of the heartbreak, all of the suffering, all of the trauma, it just bought them about another year and a half. 20 months, I yes. think, yeah. Yep. And Roland gets to live with that knowledge, knowing that there is nothing he can do to stop the end of his family and his home and his culture and his civilization he wears the burden of knowing that the, the end is nigh and that there's nothing he can do about it and this, he's a person of action right he is someone who he's been trained to do the opposite of that and there's nothing he can do to save it and then which you know that's a pretty heavy burden for a 14 year old to carry yeah and yeah and then obviously the tumbling of the 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 shoes like autumn leaves is clearly foreshadowing for the red shoes that we're about to see at the end of this chapter. So then, uh, you know, Jake basically asks Roland, like, well, whatever happened to Clay Reynolds? And, like, Roland, like, starts spitting these, like, not cute, but interesting little yarns that... Yeah. I think at one point you would put out a question asking people, like, if you could expand on anything, like, what would you expand on? Yeah. And, like, these are little vignettes that I would love to see as, like, a comic yes! or as a short story that yes. explains what happens. So we, we find out that Clay um, and and his uh, girlfriend basically, like, be, become bank robbers. Yes. And they, like, wander the countryside. And, like, Roland makes a point to say that, you know, hey, it's this neck of the woods, but the gunslingers were busy with other things. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of protection for uh, uh, these banks and places that they're robbing. And then I don't know if this is a reference to another Stephen King novel or what, but a smart sheriff finally um, corners them. Okay. And like shoots him down mm -hmm. in the middle of the street. And then Roland references something specific like a wide, wide country. A wide earth. It's a season. A wide earth. And so mm -hmm. I was like, at first, I'm like, is this, did he mean to say wide herb? And like, oh, is interesting. That, is that what I hadn't thought of here? that. And I like went back and went over to get him. Like, this does sort of sound like a wide herb. Story, yeah you know like that's interesting i had not i had not put that together but yeah totally i thought it was more of a clint eastwood reference but yeah i think it, it could very well be that so i do love this section i love this idea of finding out that clay reynolds well first of all that him and coral thorin are a thing coral yeah thorin, right yeah coral thorin the jonah after jonas died her and clay got together that that's kind of fun and that they fully went bonnie and clyde with it is yep. is a lot of fun like they say that she was involved with all the robbing and the shooting um she's come a long way from her life at the traveler's rest but to me the way that this was described that they he they were finally defeated when this smart sheriff tricked them into coming into town and then turning it into a trap made me think of my favorite weird western high plains drifter which is exactly ah, okay. how they do it, right? They paint the town red. This, like, smart sheriff who is Clint Eastwood, who is the character that King was thinking, or the person King was thinking of when he made up Roland. So, like, it's kind of like, I think, tongue-in-cheek reference to Clint Eastwood. The smart sheriff came up with this plan to use the town to trap them. So, I don't know. 
that was how I I took it. So it was like this mix of Bonnie and Clyde and and High Plains Drifter. And the the Bonnie and Clyde thing is interesting because they talk about the town being Oakley, and Oakley was one of the police officers that killed Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, okay, okay. I was wondering because when he specifically called out names uh-huh. and and stuff, I these was are called... Easter eggs for sure. Your instincts okay. were correct. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if it was like, should I know this Stephen King property or what's going on here? I mean, I think that's true. I don't. I'm trying to remember if there's any. I don't. I don't think I've read anything else that has that was like a western. Okay, but and... that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I have not read all the short stories, so. So Roland basically finishes telling that story, and then we get the biggest call call out um, we we've had in this book. Like at the beginning, you th- you're pretty sure that they're in, yeah. Um, you know the stand, trips. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like it's a little vague, and then Roland finds a note, and the note is just like, you know, the dark man is in Vegas, and like Mother Abigail's over in Nebraska. And like Roland's like, why is the bad guy always in the West? You well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, right? Because the West has such symbolism for Roland. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a very specific meaning because West is where the failed gunslingers go. And so, yeah. in the same way that like Char can be sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Disguised, uh, in other words, but the root word there tells you you know, that there's something ominous or having to do with death there, like Charlie and the choo-choo. I think there's something about the West for him, right? That that always kind of has a, he always reacts to that because there is a significance to that word. Uh, the other thing that happens here is that he finds that note on a windshield, right? You said? Yep, yep. Um, so I read that there's some speculation that that note was actually written by Nick Andrus from the stand. Oh, really? Yes, I couldn't confirm it though. I gra- I got like a copy of the book, and I tr- I mean the book's so hard to find things, and I did my best to try and find it with the time I had. Uh, so I couldn't confirm it, but I do think it makes sense, right? I do think that if you wanted to interpret it that way, he was always writing notes because you know obviously he was hearing impaired, so he would mm-hmm. always write notes, and he passed through that area when he was making his trip to Colorado could very well have been nick and i personally think it's kind of fun to to assume it is if somebody actually has proof that i couldn't find please let me know because i want to believe um (laughs) (laughs) that's my reference to one of our extended episodes uh so yeah that's funny um yeah so uh, the other thing to note is like as they're walking forward, they are seeing like the shimmering building on the horizon. So like we have gotten a couple references in in this chapter that we haven't talked about yet of just like the Emerald Palace basically being off in the in the distance. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get some more throwbacks, and Jake asks about Shimi, and like Roland oh, wait, can actually I like say one thing before oh, yeah, I move yeah. on because I this is I think important for later. So Absolutely. there's also this thing about Abigail's story being an adjacent story, not part of their story, which I thought was very oh, yeah, we're yeah, already very meta at this level, right? Because we're like reading a book in which we had a story within a story, and now here they are existing in the world of another story, and. It's interesting because, like I said, it goes to these larger motifs in this section about the power of storytelling and the magic of storytelling. But I also feel like it is groundwork 
for a let's say controversial <laughs> little did you know controversial plot point yeah exactly later in the books which i will not spoil here because it's it's a big one from later in the books but when i first read these it felt extremely left field but when i hit this moment in this i was like wait a minute this feels like a breadcrumb yeah you just look down at your feet and shake your head and you're like oh stephen king <laughs> okay sorry continue please <laughs> let's let's move forward <laughs> i just had to get that in there because i know no, that's later good stuff. on that's good stuff. i i'm gonna forget that this happened and i'll be like i wish i had noted this at the time when i remembered all right so uh, jake also like inquires about what happened to shimi and like roland sort of stops and mm-hmm. smiles for a moment yeah and like has sort of fond memories i of love shimi. this and, yes like, and Jake's a little taken aback by that and, like, basically uh, describes Shimi as this, like, almost um, Squire-esque person that, like, followed him all the way to Gilead yeah. and then, like, continues to follow them on their quest to the tower. But, like, when he presses on him a little bit to find out, you know, uh, what actually happened to Shimi, like, Roland doesn't really divulge that. And then Susan, like, jumps in and asks about Aunt Cord. And, yes and like at cord like i don't know if it's um if it's the vampirism from uh from ria or like the shock of coming to realizing like how bad of a person she is but like mm-hmm. she basically has a heart attack at the at the uh bonfire or stroke or whatever and like yep. st- strokes out and is done didn't even make it to the end of the the bonfire mm-hmm. and you're like well i guess she got what she deserves you know? right Mm-hmm. And then um, as, as they're walking forward, like Jake spots some stuff at the end of the road. Yeah. In the end of this interstate that ends in a strange way. And like everybody kind of already knows that it's a bunch of shoes. Right. And like that's where you start to realize that like the thing everybody else was in on when Roland was describing the, uh, you know, tornado with shoes yeah. is like. Uh, and Rhea, like, floating through in that yeah. is, like, this um, almost um, Wizard of Oz, you know, where, uh, uh, you know, tap your golden slippers three times type of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was so relieved when Jake asked about Shimi because I really was worried he was just going to get lost in the mix. Like, his part had been completed and we were just never going to acknowledge Shimi again. He rode off on Kathy right? into the distance. So... I'm well, glad and Kathy that... actually comes with too. So like, I know. So like you find out that like guess what? He's actually been cruising on Cappy for that entire adventure. Oh, I love it so much, and I love that he like followed them to Gilead. I, I you know, you were saying you want spinoffs. I want to know like what did old Shimi get up to between Magus and and Gilead? I bet he had some adventures with Cappy. But for some reason, I picture him as like a Don Quixote, like yes! <laughs> running around on a donkey, like messing up stuff. I know it'd be so great. So I do think it's worth noting that this is the one time since Roland stopped telling the story that one of his memories actually makes him smile and laugh. You know, this is the first positive he has response he has to any of these memories. And I think it just speaks to the wonderfulness of Shimi. It does also make me a little nervous because he won't say how the story ends. So I'm guessing not good. I mean, obviously Shimi's not with him now. So Something must have happened. But I do love this idea of him going with them on the quest as their squire. And I, I imagine it would be, there'd be some really great stories with Bert and Shimi. 
uh, yeah, so I was glad that was relief. I also was glad we got some closure on Cord, who died of guilt, essentially, which good. I'm glad. The only thing I wish is that she could have we could have seen her suffer a little bit more <laughs> because fuck Cord. Ugh, she's the worst. All right. That's what I got. OK, so uh, moving on to shoes in the road. Um, so basically like what everybody kind of knew except for Roland is that the shoes are sitting in the road for him. They get up to the, uh, location of said shoes and realize that there's a pair basically for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. e- even and two for, for Oi. <laughs> yeah. And two pair for Oi. And like Susan apparently even gets some, uh, some caps. Like, I guess they're in caps oh. instead of shoes for uh-huh. legs. Cappies. And, Which I was like, Cappy? Cappy? Wait, what? What? I didn't know that was a thing. So, like, I Googled it, and the stuff I found was actually um, a soft material that you put over your the end of them to protect them when you're wearing your prosthetics. Oh, interesting. But I don't know if that's the actual thing that they're talking about, because... None of them were diamond studded, and I don't think that would be very comfortable if you put them. No, in. no, 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 no. Just pro tip: do not, do not yeah, yeah. stand on diamonds. And like, <laughs> there's a moment where they're, uh, where Susan's like looking at these shoes and wondering if they're actually just crushed diamond and not, you know, bad sequences or or whatever. And it's sort of a, a weird thing. And then Eddie, like, I don't know what's going on with this, but everybody has like a pair of shoes for their time and genre. So like, mm-hmm. Eddie's mm-hmm. got these like. Um, you know, uh, John Travolta, New York shoes. <laughs> yes, I, ha- I had to look it up, and I was like, "Oh my god, of course he's wearing these." Yeah, they're just silly. And then like Roland's got like you know rhinestone cowboy boots, and like Jake's got regular shoes. And then I didn't get a big description of what Oi's shoes look like. I assume they're just cute little like they're dog like little shoes. yeah, they're like little boots. Like you know how like you'll see like little dog shoes or like little baby booties. I think that's what they look like. And so we basically, like, everybody is on the same page except for Roland now and maybe Oi to a lesser extent, but who knows where Oi's at anyway on any page. Um, so they have to actually sit down and, like, explain the story of Wizard of Oz to <laughs> to Roland. Yes. And, like, go through the whole thing. And Roland is, like, fairly self-aware as he's thinking about this, like, as Jake's describing, you know, the tin man who needs a heart and the cowardly tiger who needs, you know, bravery and so on. And like gets to the end and like Roland's like, so what you're telling me is they had everything they needed all along. He's like, yeah, that's the moral of the story. And then like the, there's kind of a weird discussion about the popularity of the Wizard of Oz. And I didn't realize that they had written a bunch of Oz books. Oh, my God. There's so many. I did not know that at all. You can like, buy them. Oh, you can get on Audible. You can get them, and they're like it's like fifty hours. What? Yeah. Are they any good? I mean, I haven't read them, but I love Return to Oz, so maybe. <laughs> so, and then there's the there's this like fun little reference to the Wiz. Yeah. Where like um, I don't know how I feel about the reference to the Wiz. Like I'm like. Was she meant to be sarcastic? Like, uh, what a peculiar idea. Yeah, that, I know, right? <laughs> that I'm on board with. Like, if she's just like, how weird would that be? Like, sarcastically, I'm, I, I'm in support. Yeah, and so I thought that was, like, a fun call-out. And Which then I the other thing the that they focus in on this story is that, like, the wizard, um, and Roland kind of picks up on this right away, is, like, using sort of old-timey terms for, like, a wizard. He's like, you know, um, I forget what he calls him, but, like, 
basically uh, Roland understands the concept he calls of the him wizard a den. I think. Yeah, which... yeah den. Like Let's so, like sort of like adjacent to a, a gen. Let's see. Which here. would be den. like a genie. And it has um, dark tower. It has a meaning. Or oh, this is a throwback to when we first started the podcast, and we'd have like our learning uh, midworldian. <laughs> Let's see. A it's kind of dropped off because they haven't spent a lot of midworld time. I have a feeling we're about to get some more of it. Okay, so din is a term in high speech that refers to one who is considered the leader of a quartet. Roland is the den of his tet. There you go. Hmm. So I think it's somebody like we well, says like a a baron or a king or a den. So I think it's like a leader, like a powerful leader. Oh, okay, okay. Which a wizard could also be. Okay. Yeah. So then they have to basically describe to him that like really uh he wasn't actually a wizard, he was just like kind of a charlatan. And yeah. And Jake uses a weird term for charlatan. He calls him a bum a humbug. Which yeah, I thought, like, which I've, is also a reference back to Christmas Carol. Yeah, it you know, is. And, bah humbug, right? Yeah, and I was wondering because like I, that was such a weird term. Like, yeah, I've never humbug. heard like, that. I've before. never heard it. That, <laughs> I mean, I've heard humbug used as like a grouchy person or like someone who's doesn't crummy, like Christmas. Yeah, but not someone who's like you know playing a show at, at being something and actually being like a fake or a, a charlatan. So. It's just a weird reference, and then like that gives okay. Stephen King the opportunity to, to I have just Roland it pronounce it. I just looked it up. Humbug actually means something. I thought it was oh, okay. just something that like it was a Scrooge original, but uh-huh. it actually means deceptive or false talk or behavior. Oh. So when he's saying "bah humbug," he's trying to say like that's bullshit, essentially. Oh, dude, we're learning all kinds of stuff today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did not know that either. me like, neither <laughs> if you hadn't asked i would not even have looked it up but yeah so that actually so yeah i guess he's saying he's sort of a humbug which like he's sort of deceptive a liar huh i wonder huh. if that was like a more common term in like the 40s and 50s and less so in our you know like a copacetic or um, yeah i mean it would have been like when did charles dickens write like he wrote like turn of the century and that yeah that it's like feels 1800s, very right? like tur- yeah that feels like some language that they would use yeah hmm. yeah uh, and so then stephen king takes this opportunity to basically like turn this into a Roland joke where instead of saying humbug uh roland's like so he is a bum hug <laughs> and then like eddie picks up on that like being the most hilarious like kid joke ever uh so he starts throwing it into sentences just to get a a laugh out of jake i love this is one of my favorite moments in the section i actually pulled the quote because i thought it was really great and he says um okay look let's just take him along if we're supposed to put him on i think we'll know when the time comes in the meantime we ought to be aware of bum hugs bearing gifts it cracked jake up as eddie knew had known it would Sometimes a word or image got into your funny bone like a virus and just lived there a while. Tomorrow, the word bum hug might mean nothing to the kid. But for the rest of today, however, he was going to laugh every time he heard it. Eddie intended to use it a lot, especially when old Jake wasn't expecting it. And it's a it's a subtle little funny moment where you really do understand how their relationship has evolved and that Eddie has become kind of the good big brother that he never had to Jake. And it's really sweet, and it it just re as for me it was like a moment where I reoriented back to my love of Eddie. Not that I never didn't like Eddie, but I've been like so enamored with Cooper for this whole book that I was like, oh yeah, Eddie's also the best. 
Um, and it was this sort of cute moment with Jake that really did it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen King's is like basically leaning heavy on their relationship again to like make you feel for the characters where you mm-hmm. haven't had them in your life for a while. Correct. I think you're absolutely correct. Yeah. So then the basically they, they see the shoes, they grab the shoes, and then they're like, okay, let's continue on to this, you know, big Emerald Palace. It, yeah, can the, I say one more oh, thing yeah, before absolutely. they keep moving? Okay, really quickly, I just want to say, when they tell Roland the story of the Wizard of Oz, we as readers, because we're of the same world as Jake and, and Susanna and Eddie, we immediately contextualized it and knew, okay, it's Wizard of Oz. and But Wizard of Oz to us is something that feel it's something from childhood and it feels sort of innate safe and maybe a little silly like it is okay. for eddie Susie, Susanna, and jake who are like laughing about it you know singing the songs from it whereas roland because he's an outsider and he doesn't have that connection to it he reorients us back into the stakes of the actual situation that they're in that this thing that may have seemed sweet and safe because it's a, a, a part of their childhood is actually a place that is very dangerous and very strange. And it reminds you that there are stakes in this moment. This, this is not something they're not following the yellow brick road to some story from their childhood, that they're actually headed to, into something dangerous and strange and weird and uncanny. So one of the other things uh, while they're walking, the, the thinny is like sort of going in and out. And there's this weird moment where like um, they're talking about Kansas, like in the wizard of Oz, but, they're like this Kansas is a little thin and it's like mm-hmm. I I almost reached out to my legs and just did like don't <laughs> <'Cause, laughs> oh got it got it got it because <laughs> it's a little thin and like the thinny is like whining in and out so much that even with like stuff shoved in their ears um it's starting to give uh Eddie like sinus pains right and like that vibration itself just kind of like sets it up as like even though you're just walking to a highway that has a weird end <laughs> yeah know, uh almost in another land like this is again where i question the what a thinny does because yeah. at this point it sort of feels like as they're walking down this highway in what we seem to understand is the stand universe mm-hmm. like the thinny as they push on it is sort of transporting him to a different highway where mm-hmm. the Emerald City is and not Kansas. And I, I don't know if that's because we've seen the Emerald City this whole time, but at first I thought of it more of like a a mirage, I guess. And like I, I almost want I, and I wanted to get your take on this is like is the the epicenter of the thinny just like really beating on him and them crossing the threshold from like one one universe to another universe or one you know part of the tower to another part of the tower to get to the the next part of their travels i mean or am i thinking too hard on this i i'm i'm trying to understand exactly what your question is i'm sorry okay so they're they're walking down the highway and like the thinny is really like getting tough on them and like we've already we've already established that earlier they were in the the stand kansas yeah but obviously the stand kansas does not have the emerald tower right in it right and there's a a moment where they the thinny like gets to its highest point and i guess my question is is, are they walking through the thinny to enter you know 
another layer of the tower, another universe or whatever. To... I mean, yeah, the walls between the worlds are broken, right? So yeah. they're yeah, I don't I don't know if it could very well be that this Emerald Palace is in Midworld, and so this is just like a little bit of it peeking out, and all of the the sickness that they're feeling is they're getting closer and closer to the epicenter. I was thinking a lot about like uh what is it? Like in, infrasound intrasound? Ultrasound? Infrasound. What's infrasound? It's like sound you can't hear, but it has like a physical effect on your body. Like a lot of like times, the brown note? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But like it causes feelings of like unease. And so people will have there have been like cases of like mass hysteria that could be you know, uh, trace back to like trace back to, yes to this infrasound that they don't realize that they're hearing yet, but it's like actually messing with them. So is it a low frequency or a high frequency? I think it might be a high frequency, or is it a low frequency? Well, so it, if it's messing with your sinuses, I would almost lean towards low, just because the lower a pulse is, the like shakier it is on your body. Like you can actually, uh, if you've ever been near a bass speaker. <laughs> yeah like you can actually feel that like in your chest even when it gets down to where you can't hear it you can still feel the pressure wave that mm -hmm. hits you but if you go high um what human hearing is maybe like two two uh 20 20 kilohertz ish yeah is so, okay like infrasound really it is low frequency sound that is below the lower limit of human audible audibility, which okay. is generally 20 hertz. So you're okay. right. <laughs> yep. All right. All right. That makes a lot of sense then. Yeah. So like what it does is it creates a sense of, of fear and unease in people and that they have, they act out in weird ways. So. That actually makes perfect sense. Um, Yeah. Uh, I would not argue with that one bit. Yeah. W one fun thing to do, like you and, and Randy, when you're, you're just sitting in there, like, staring at each other in, in, in your air conditioning. Like, if you just both try to hum the same frequency. Okay. You'll feel a point where, like, the vibration of the hum sort of reflects from the other person back onto you. Uh-huh. And it resonates in your own uh, skull in a weird way that, like, sort of feels comforting and satisfying. Really? So yeah, you, like, so... are, like, weirdly in sync. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you'll feel it be if, if you start humming, like, mm, and he hums and he's a little bit off, you'll feel, like, the alternating vibrations between the two hums. And then as you come into pitch with each other, like, and they line up, that trough between the two uh, frequencies goes away and it creates this, like, strange resonance in your head. I, I know this because I used to work in, well, in substations and everything hums at 60 hertz. And 60 hertz is a really easy tone to just be like, mm. That's crazy. And if you go next to like a transformer and you hum, your whole head feels like it's in a different spot because like as soon as the two frequencies lay on top of each other, it resonates. And then the pressure waves in your skull just feel way different than they do normally. And like, oh, that's it's, so cool. It's like a weird, creepy, like, wait, what? What? Oh, okay. So, like, I mean, I wonder if that's like when people talk about like vibrations, like raising your vibration. Yeah, <laughs> that's that probably an easy about? way to like trick someone into thinking that it's more than it is. Like, yeah, watch this. We'll hum together. Like, you see that? That vibrations in everything the universe, crystals, crystal water. You should put your water in crystals and like 
before you know uh, it. You're yeah. in a cult. Yeah, but exactly. Listen, I live in the Bay Area. I know all about that shit. Uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, I was reading a little bit about infrasound, and it says that, okay, they did, like, experiments, right, with subwoofers. And they found that the test subjects all reported physical anxiety, shortness of breath, and even small amounts of nausea. This was dismissed uh, um, by the host, noting that the sound and frequency, intensity, whatever, whatever. So the point is... Like what they're describing is not that far off from infrasound. Oh, okay, okay. So then, it, maybe infrasound is what's like moving them through the the different like worlds or thin. Um, I think what it does is it may. My interpretation is it is a um a, like one of the things whatever the thinny is doing. One of the effects of that creates infrasound, and so the thing that they're feeling, um is a response to that infrasound not that the infrasound itself is creating the thinning and now i kind of want to report back from you guys on like how, how the humming went I, I will let you know <laughs> i'm gonna do the hum experiment later on and i will let you know exactly how it goes so one <laughs> thing is looking this, at like... me crazy because you can only hear half this conversation oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's like what hum experience that's weird what are you talking about <laughs> back to the main thread so yes uh we can agree that there's something to do with the sound. We're not sure what it's about. Yeah. I mean, that's a me theory. This is just me like tinfoil hatting out. That's all. I just kind of want to know like how the transitions from world to world actually work. Because, I mean, like, isn't it like that bubble theory? Like we're all just sort of like, it's the quantum foam, right? Or like, we're all just in these bubbles. And you're and just the, going from like one edge of bubble to another edge of bubble. That's what I, I mean, that's what I was thinking. So then is the, the thinny, like the quantum space in between, or is it like actually where those bubbles touch each other? Well, I think we're going to learn about the space between in, in wolves of the cult. Oh yeah, you're right. Okay. Mm, we're going to get into toe dash and shit. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, let's, uh, let's not, let's not spoil that. Yeah. Stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Where were we? I've completely oh, okay, lost okay. track so, of the, um, where we were. <laughs> so they get past the noisy thinny. Oh, right. They yes, basically. Yes. They basically make it to this gate, and this gate, um, Rachel and I actually spent probably 30 or 40 minutes when we started this uh, uh, live stream talking about what the gate actually looked like. Yes. And I, I believe our consensus is that it, it basically looks like the Scrooge McDuck uh, gate that opens in the middle. So you have a bunch of like up down pillars with like a curving top and a bottom, but each of the pillars are glowing Uh and inside of those are different representations of the wizard's class. Is that what we decided on? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Does that sound okay? So I, I, had tried thought, to... I like the Scrooge McDuck because like I actually can really picture that. Yeah, when he's like driving up like at the intro and like it swings yes. open. Yes, when life is like a hurricane in Duckburg. Yeah, <laughs> Don't make me sing it. I know every word. <laughs> and so that that gate, they look at it and like as they look in uh, at each of these these glowing bars they realize that they're the different colors of the wizard's rainbow. Yes. And then they notice inside that they're like little microcosms of representations of each of those. Um, So one of them has like sea ladies with like human faces. One of them is the pink one. And it's like constantly horses on the drop riding through pink mist. Mm -hmm. And then one of them is black. Black is night. And like that one, I guess represents the 13th color yep. of the wizard's glass yes which black is 13. like 
the mm-hmm. you know 13 obviously that's got the its connotations but also you know basically the death yeah, that's the one that his father tells him not to talk about because yep. it might be drawn to him. I was like, ugh. Yeah, exactly. That and is really creepy. And so then Eddie, like, in this weird moment, like, decides to just, like, walk up in the the death particular bar that's colored completely jet black is, like, the middle one where uh-huh. the gates swing together, which is appropriate because that, like, leaves a dark space between the two connections at the gate. And Susan's like, no, Eddie, don't. And Eddie, like... I don't know what this moment was supposed to mean, but like he breathes in like for a second as Susan tells him not to do it, but then he just does it and like mm-hmm. waits for something to happen, whether he's going to be like shot dead, electrocuted or whatever. And like, there's a bit of like, um, pregnant silence. Yeah. And then he's like, well, <laughs> nothing happened. Okay. Yeah. And it's like, was that Eddie's moment where he's like, whether this kills me or not, like, I'm all in. I kind of feel like some of what is happening, because there's a lot of talk about Kef, but I think there's a lot of shine psychic stuff happening in this section. Oh, okay. Because there's also a moment when they walk up, when Jake, well, first of all, he says that the castle hums like the thinny. I'm like, oh, that's not good. But where he sees these pennants that are are flying from the poles on, or the tenant, the, what are they called? Tenants? No. What are they uh, no, tenons, I think is correct. That's like okay. a, the pokey things at the top, right? Yeah. Tenants? No. I don't know. Whatever. The pointy things at the top are these te- uh, these pennants that are flapping that have the have an eye on them, which is we in this book up until this point have been told was the, the sigil of Farson. But in like in a moment of inspiration, Jake says it's the mark of the Crimson King. It's it's really his signal, not John Farson's. He didn't know how he knew this. How could he? When Alabama's Crimson Tide was the only Crimson thing he knew. But he did. Crimson Tide. Oh, yeah. So the point is, I think he's kind of having a moment of psychic inspiration here or or touch inspiration here. And I think the same thing sort of happens with Eddie where he knows that he can, even though there's like a moment where he's like, oh shit, there's something in him that tells him that he can go ahead and touch these bars, which is what, how I took it. I don't know if that's oh, true okay. I took it almost as like him being like, this could kill me. And like, everybody's like, no, don't do it. it. I mean, I think definitely Susanna is freaked out and doesn't want him to touch it because she thinks he can kill him. Did we talk about what uh, Jake saw when he looked at them yet? Or no, we haven't gotten there yet. Sorry. No, sorry. I, I did mention briefly the mermaid ladies and, okay. um, and the horses, but uh, um, there's a couple other ones, I believe. Yeah. So I, uh, the reason I wanted to come back to this, I mean, first of all, it, it, just the mind of Stephen King is mind boggling that he's like, yeah, I'm going to make this castle and then I'm going to have these bars that are in the color of all of Maryland's rainbow. And then I'm going to have inside of them teeny tiny little uh mermaids but then so i was like you're insane but then i was thinking about you know the stuff that we learn at the end of the gunslinger and about um how there could be a whole world on a blade of grass and what we're seeing is kind of that here right so all right uh here's a quote from the book he says he, uh, what are you taking for moats of some kind were creatures, living creatures, imprisoned inside the bar, swimming in tiny schools. They look like tiny fish in an aquarium, but they also, their heads, Jake told himself, I think it's mostly their heads, looked oddly, disquietingly human, as if Jake thought they were swimming into a vertical golden sea, all of the ocean in a gla- rod of glass, 
and living myths no longer than no bigger than grains of dust swimming within it. So then I started thinking about um, Wasteland and how we kept referring to the Auguries of Innocence by uh, William Blake uh, and how this this is essentially a, a take on that poem. So I'm going to read you the quote that was re- you'll recognize it because it came up a lot in the last book. Um, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. This is kind of, again, returning to this same idea of worlds within worlds within worlds, which larger mythology is something that we keep being having returned to us like uh, when we get into the metaphysical stuff in these books. But it also speaks to the larger motif in this section, which is worlds within worlds, which is in worlds, which is where our characters are right now. Like they're in a story within a story that's taking place in another story. So hmm. it works on a lot of levels. A lot of levels. Okay. Yeah, I never really thought about that. That's actually a good quote. Um, the Blade of Grass thing is actually kind of cool. Yeah. It's, it's weird, though. Like, what is why why is the gate <laughs> right like yeah i mean like what are we trying to get here? like i get the colors of the wizard's rainbow but like i mean and is like, this Maryland's castle is that what is that where we are you think so maybe i mean his Maryland's rainbow is on the gate i mean you know it's scrooge mcduck's house because it's got scrooge on the on the gate <laughs> right <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, okay. I don't know. I think we're going to find out in the next couple of chapters, but hopefully we'll get some answers. But that's my interpretation. It's like maybe we just like rolled up on Marilyn's house, which makes me think there might be some evil glass in there. Because remember, evil we glass. get that thing about like all the glass that's left is evil. Like maybe there's going to be some of that in here. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't remember. Me neither. Much of this. <laughs> me so. Neither. Like, I feel like I'm discovering it again for the first time because that's how far back it's been. So it is kind of interting to be like a little on the edge of your seat, like thinking, oh, maybe I need to go. I have not read this in 1997. In my defense, I read this in 1997. That I remember as much as I do, I'm impressed by. (laughs) Oh, the last time I went through these was like 2006 or 2007. Okay, so a long ass time ago. (laughs) Yeah, a long time ago, but not nearly to the extent that you're pushing. I mean, because I just like read the book immediately when it came out, you know? Ah, okay. Yeah. Mm hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so. Basically, what they decide is, like, you can't just push the gate open. And, and like, right. Jake's sort of, like, what Rachel was mentioning about, like, psychic powers a little bit is, like, that's not how you get in anyway, guys. We all know how this works. Yeah. And, like, they, like, look at him and he's, like, tap, tap, tap. <laughs> and, yeah. like, and, like, Roland still doesn't get it. But I everybody know. else is, like, oh, yeah, of course, of course. You, you, you think that'll work? And, like, so they, they all put their shoes on. They get Roland to put his shoes on. They tap, tap, tap. And the gate sort of, like, energizes and glows a little bit, but nothing happens. Yeah. And, like, Jake looks over. He's like, oh, yeah, of course. We forgot to put the booties on on away. <laughs> oh, he's so cute in this section. And so they're like, they're like, okay. So um, Jake tries to put the first couple on, and then, like, Oi gets to the point of, like, what's going on and helps put the other two on. And... And Eddie's like, man, what kind of weird place am I that uh, this, like, rat creature gets to wear shoes walking around? <laughs> and, do you like, have little uh, booties for your dogs, by the way? Now, Especially now that it's super hot, do they have little booties? Uh, so we have winter little booties. Uh-huh. Um, 
for the summer, our yard is mostly shaded okay. all over. Okay. So there's not any place, one place that gets super heated where it would burn their little toes. Okay, good, um, good, We good. are super cognizant of it when we go to the beach. Yeah. Um, you take your shoes off first and put them, uh, put your foot on the ground to make sure that it's not unpleasant before you let the dogs wander around. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you can burn their little paws. Yeah. yeah I can and- just picture them having a little, I can picture you guys being the couple that had booties for your dogs. Well, the so in um, in Nebraska uh, during some of those uh, winter weeks where it was you know minus twenty degrees Ugh. with like a, a forty mile an hour winds, dogs still got to poop. Yep. Yeah, I guess that's true. And pee, and so we had these like either I would take a little like towel out and toss it down so that they could walk to the snow, which wouldn't stick to their paws. Or um, we would put these little booties on them and they would like awkwardly, no one likes them. So they would just like do this, like, <laughs> like maybe we put something weird on a cat and they like yeah. just like do that thing where they're like, the whole world is wrong. Like, is it shaking? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so they just kind of like spread out a bit and like awkwardly are like one foot, two foot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, the gang figures out that, uh, um, uh oi needs to click his heels too he's having a little trouble doing it so he like rolls over on his back and like basically gets assistance in the clicking and then Mm -hmm. we get a click 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 and cut yeah well it shatters so it's so dramatic the, the, the black bar shatters so so yeah i do think it's funny that we continue to have roland experiencing fomo in this chapter <laughs> <laughs> i mean i kind of understand it I've, everybody else has an inside joke like instinctively and i'm just like what 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 and nobody's explaining it to me i would get fomo too but i do think it shows you some growth in terms of his connection to them that he could even experience fomo like i feel like roland in previous books would have just like rolled his eyes and like whatever stupid earthlings you know <laughs> whereas now i do think that he wants that sense of connection and he wants to be you know he wants to be a part of the calf um and so i thought that was kind of a a, a good character moment that's worth pointing out so the last thing I would say is that it takes all of them to open the gate, including Oi. And I think what that is a reminder of is that the ca- it requires the Ka-Tet together to make progress. Like if you stay together, if you stick together, you can overcome things, you will move forward. And splitting them up, as we learned in his previous story, equals failure. And mm-hmm. it's something that that hopefully Roland takes away from this, right? That he'll understand that the stakes of splitting up the Cotet or sacrificing from him for the Cotet will equal failure for him. Um, We saw what happened with Jake when he let him fall. And we also saw what happened to Susan as soon as they split up. Um, We saw, you know, how much trouble they were, they were really in when he wasn't connecting with, or wasn't talking to Bert and Elaine again and again, we saw the importance of that cohesion of Kotet and this sort of, this, this literally reinforced it when they like could not move past this gate until they were all together. So fingers crossed that that is a lesson learned. What did you think overall of this chapter? Um, what did I think about this chapter? I, there, I don't know it's what weird, I think right? about this chapter. Like I, I, I didn't dislike it. Um, I just, I, it was a little bit of a fever dream. I had a little <laughs> trouble following it at times. 
there's a lot of really good interesting stuff here it's a little yeah i don't know how i feel good mostly good kind of confused a little bit hungry i don't know how about you (laughs) i'm in the same boat like our earlier discussion just trying to like remember what the gate looked like was a it was an endeavor and it's yeah. like they're throwing a bunch of, of little tidbits at you that I really like. Yes. Like finding out about Shimi and like yes. what happens to Clay and yes. Thorin, like, and then, you know, the ants. So those, those are all really like kind of cool vignettes, uh-huh. but at the same time, like, I don't know how long are they going to walk on this road? And then like, you're like, now it's the thinny and now we're back to wizard of Oz again. And now it's the shoes and we're back to the shoes and then the gate and then the Emerald building and then Kansas and then the stand and the whirlwind of like going back and forth between all those topics. Yeah. I'm, I'm having like genre whiplash a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And I think maybe it's because we've been on a stable track this whole time with like um, the storytelling, like we're basically stuck in that universe and like that soap opera is playing out. Yeah. And then we've suddenly like, pulled completely back from that and now it's it's like that scene in men in black where like you're on earth and then suddenly like there's just an alien playing with universes of balls like dinking around you're like yeah. how did i get out here yeah <laughs> yes i mean we we had we had some weird western some a little bit of fantasy tech dystopia full-on western and then all of a sudden we're just i don't even know what genre this is <laughs> magical realism i don't know (laughs) but i just i kind of maybe by the end of the next chapter i will have my bearings a little more the only thing i can describe it as is genre whiplash a little bit but good stuff in here really good stuff in here definitely worthwhile for the next episode we're going to be covering wizard and glass part four all god's children got shoes chapter three wizard and chapter four the glass the glass the glass Class. Which now I'm thinking my theory that there's got to be that this is Maryland's. We just like, yeah, this is like his spot. And we're going to see some more of these evil glasses. Maybe That'd be cool. Is it going to be Black 13? Mm, <laughs> oh, no. All right. So connections to the Stephen King universe. I feel like I covered in the episode the only one that I really found, which was potentially that it was Nick that wrote that message. But this thing is so dense with weird symbolism. I may have missed something. And if I did please drop us a line because I want to know. You can do that at castofcaw at zombiegirls.com. And speaking of our email, let's get into our listener feedback and Facebook group question. Again, last last week I messed up. Last episode I messed up and I posted the question way too late. I did not give people a chance to answer. So we pushed this one to this episode and that is, who is the true villain of the Wizard and Glass story within a story? You know, we Roland and his group and Susan, they've all confronted a lot of bad guys in this in this book. You know, they're sort of your, you know, prototypical enemy, which would be Jonas. Uh, but then there's also some, you know, side characters who just do really heinous things like Cordelia or Rhea. So I wanted to know with all of these baddies, who's the baddest of the baddies? Who is the truest villain in this book? Do you have an answer for that, Deej? I mean, really, like, the moral of of Roland's story is, like, the worst person in your life is you. (laughs) I also was kind of wondering if he's the villain of this. Because, like, Roland, like, he's not the villain by intent, but he's the villain by, like, execution. Yeah. And so any number of things he could have done throughout this 
story would have made everybody okay, or at least not in as bad of a position as they were. And like his choices ultimately lead to the demise of the girl he loves. And like, not just the little choices, but the big choices too. And even the choices of like looking into the ball and forsaking his, his life with Susan, these are all like on Roland and even though like Aunt Cord's evil and, you know, the court was corrupt and like they were actually like working for the good man, like in the the cattleman's union murdered her father. You know, th- those are sort of like ancillary things that were going on compared yeah. to like Roland actually like really driving the story and driving the ending, um, right. so to speak. So f- for me, like it's hard not to just point at Roland and be like, you're your own worst enemy, man. Yeah, I had similar thoughts because I was thinking about all the people he faced off with, with the exception of Rhea, who he never fully tested. So we don't know if this is true. Nobody was really a match for Roland. Not really. When he was on his game, he Mm -hmm. just burned through Jonas. He burned through Latigo. I mean, he never really faced off with with Cord directly or Coral. Um, But everybody he was faced with when it came down to like a fight, there were they were no match for him. We don't know about Rhea. If he had actually acted on trying to kill her, maybe maybe she would have put up a more of a fight. But I don't get the sense she would have, or she wouldn't have been sending her snake out to kill him, right? She wouldn't have been cowering and hiding from inside her, his, her hut if she didn't recognize that he was a formidable foe. So really the only person that beat Roland was Roland himself. So on one hand, I do think that is the right answer. But I don't think he had villainous intent. So when you get into, like, who, in terms of their moral character, is the biggest villain, I think it's got to be, it's got to be Rhea, right? Because no, everybody has some motivation for what they did in the case of, of Jonas. It's greed, um, selfishness. But hers is, like, outright hatred, you know? Like, truly cruel, evil morally corrupt motivation for everything she does like she takes joy in other suffering so i think in terms of character it's ria in terms of who got the best of roland it was himself yeah that I, care? is that a cheat i don't know it's a little bit of it's a, a little bit of a cheat um I, but you know uh i guess like ria or the ball actually would be uh, equally of, of blame, the right? Ball. Oh, that's interesting. Because like maybe the ultimate enemy was the ball. Yeah, because if you think about like everything that's happened, like Rhea wouldn't have done what she did without the ball being involved. Um, the things that were set in motion wouldn't happen without the ball being involved. Right. And then like finally, right. Roland wouldn't have done what he did without the ball. And so she wouldn't even have known he was there if the yep. first thing it showed her wasn't that. Ooh, yep, exactly so like if you really if you're gonna go that route with like two enemies roland like the moral of the story is like you, you messed up buddy <laughs> yeah. and then the other moral of the story is that like you lost to the ball basically yeah he sure did i mean to this day he even says he's still suffering because of the things the ball showed him you're yep. right i think the ultimate villain in this is the ball Oh, all right. You we cracked have it. consensus. Okay, well, let's see what the listeners had to say because I put this on the Facebook group and I did a call out to listener for for emails for people who are not on the Facebook group. Although, if you're on Facebook, join the group. It's dope. Okay, so Craig says he would say Rhea, 
everyone else at least has some kind of reason for the evil that they do. Ah, see, he and I were kind of on the same page here. It's a job, it's to make money, it's to gain power, etc. Rhea just does things to fuck up people's day. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yep, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, it's what makes her such an awful but awesome uh, villain. All right, so Tim says, oh, all right, Tim's already, of course, way ahead of us, as usual. He says, Marilyn's grapefruit feels correct to me. It's a big catalyst for Rhea being the way she is, though I'm sure she was no ray of sunshine before she had it, and doing <laughs> what she does to Roland, to Susan, and to the town. Plus, it tricks Roland into killing... Oh, these are spoilers. Okay, well, we won't get into that. If I was answering which person was the truest villain even though that the ball is the most malevolent force in the story, he would probably in the larger context, go for John Farson and the fall of Gilead story. Leah says, I would have to say Jonas is the truest villain of this story in the sense that he is, he's Roland's main adversary. And the story is set up of a game of castles between the two. There are so many other good villains, but Jonas brings together all the forces working against the content. That is true. Good point. I wanted to say Rhea because she's just so damn vile, but she really was minding her own business when Jonas brought her into the story and she, and only became a truly dangerous, only became truly dangerous after Roland failed to dispatch her as he could have easily done. Again, that goes back to the idea that Roland's is worse than me because he, you're right. He could have taken her out and Susan would have lived. I mean, she would have gotten dumped, which that sucked to her, but at least she would have lived. Brenda says, Jonas, because as a failed gunslinger, he seems to me to be Roland's polar opposite. That's interesting. You know, if you're thinking about if if Roland is our hero, his antithesis would be the villain, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's see. Um, so that I think everybody's kind of hovering around the same things that we were thinking. Like, yeah. it doesn't sound like there's a lot of like um way out there i do feel like everybody's making declarative statements but you can feel the ambivalence a little bit like they're like this person's probably the worst but (laughs) because there really is honestly like an embarrassment of bad guy riches in this i think that there are five villains in this that are better than the main villain in other books you know what i mean that's true so solidly written and you kind of like you want to know more about even like Rhea. You kind of want to know more about like. Of course. And so normally, like you, you don't get that many bad guys that you could actually care to hear more about. Right. right? Totally. Oh. I mean, because he he injects them with actual pathos and also a little bit of mystery. You know. Yeah, they're not just red shirts running around like right. getting like tossed under they're the gun. They're not just like twirling their mustaches. There, there's there's stuff there. There's meat on dumb bones. Yeah, okay. come here, Shimi. I want to make out with you. So let's see here. Cast uh, this one. We actually did get one email, and this one comes from Christopher. And he said, just finished listening to the latest cast of Caw podcast. Another great one. Thank you very much. And I thought I'd chime in on this week's listener question about Roland's biggest and most obvious nemesis. Personally, I feel there is no better yin to Roland's yang than Jonas, especially if we are limiting the possibilities to the fourth book of the Dark Tower series. Seems to me that these characters are both incredibly similar yet different and share some connections. The main being that uh, Roland's becoming and Jonas's failing at becoming a gunslinger. I can only imagine that if these two had been attempting to best court in the same class or time, that they would have been some epic and nasty battles. 
everything or something else I wanted to touch on and came to me while listening to the previous podcast, specifically when you were discussing the portion of the book where Rhea began to drink Aunt Court's blood. This image immediately made me think about the little sisters of Illuria. Ooh, okay. Ooh. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here, Christopher, but I'm gonna hold on to this letter and we are gonna revisit this very soon because the next story that we are going to be reading is Little Sisters of Illuria. And so when we do that, we're gonna come we're gonna come back to your theory and we're gonna discuss it. Don't let me forget to do that, DJ. Okay. No so, taking. yeah. I think these are all really valid answers. And I think, honestly, the takeaway here is that there are no wrong answers, except for maybe Coral Thorn. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of them, I think you could really make a compelling argument for. What do you think? You know, there there's a number of characters I don't think you could even toss villain on, like right. the, the sheriff's assistant. Right, right, right. You know, or like some of the guys that like, like the, I think it was a, a baker or a butcher that like throws the first flame on Susan's, you know, yeah. bonfire. Right. Like, but the main, the main notes like are all there and like, they're all cool. Like uh, they're, they're evil and they're like doing crazy stuff. You know, like you didn't really need to slit Thorne's throat and like also be all weird about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like yeah. that's a that right there, like that's a minor thing, and it's like still big enough that you're like, maybe maybe he should be it, you know? Right, <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I mean, it's even the, our little side villains are pretty compelling, pretty decent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. What great answers! Thank you, everybody, for answering. We'll have a new question up soon. Hopefully, you'll even more of you participate because we love hearing what you how you guys are interpreting the book because so much of the fun of this book is like. There's some books that you read them and it's like face value and it's a fun little yarn, whatever. But I love how deep these go and how much they invite you to think deeply as you're reading them. So we love to hear how you guys are thinking about them when you're reading them. All right. So Stephen King adaptation movie news, none. So I guess we'll just wrap it up. Uh, if you want to drop us a line, you can do so at castofcodzombiegirls.com. You can come chat with us on the Cast of Coffee's book group if you're cool like that. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods if you're enjoying the show. If you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight, check out our video on demand and streaming calendar on the Zombie Girls website. If you're a nerd who likes video games, come check us out at twitch.tv forward slash zombie girls. If you want to like really level up your wardrobe and or coffee mug collection and or other product collection you should definitely check out our merch store at tpublic.com for chess zombie dash girls dash podcast and if you love us and you want more of this awesome content you want to hang out with us whatever the case may be you can do all of those things by supporting us on patreon at patreon.com for slash zombie girls Honestly, the perk that I keep talking about, because I think it's the best one, is hanging out with us on the Discord. We're in there every day, goofing around, talking about stuff, DJ showing these cute-ass dogs we keep referring to, <laughs> because I keep asking for them. <laughs> I know, like, every few, like, if a week has gone by and I've not seen Gizmo or Hero, I'm like, DJ, too sweet. Let's go. Chop, chop. <laughs> I'm on it. Got yeah. that. <laughs> Um, but also all of our episodes are extended. So today, for instance, we're going to be talking about, obviously we talk about some of our very favorite books in the whole world, The Dark Tower, but you know, they're not the only things we read. So I'm going to find out what DJ's been reading and I'm going to tell DJ what I've been reading and see if we can get some recommendations going because 
don't know about you, but I tend to like I, I end up picking I pick safe things that you know. Oh really? Are, yeah, a little bit. And so I, but I really appreciate recommendations. So I like to kind of hear what's outside of my silo of books. You know, do you never just go mention. like, oh, that's on sale? Um, read the synopsis. Like, sure, good enough. <laughs> and then I mean, home. the closest thing to that is like Audible will like drop a bunch of free books that you can choose from. And so sometimes I will grab a book that I wouldn't necessarily spend a credit on. And one of the books I'll be talking about today is is one of those things that I like. I was like, well, it's free. Fuck it. And I ended up thinking it was, it was pretty good. So, but the thing is, is I do think that you have maybe a little bit a broader spectrum of books that you listen to. So, or read. So I definitely am curious to get some, maybe some new. A lot of science hits. books make it into my. Yeah, you're a good. Okay. Here's the thing is. We'll talk, you know, I'll save this when we get into yeah, yep, this. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, behind, yep, behind, this is behind the scenes. The <laughs> yep, 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 yep. All right. DJ, if they want some more quality time with your voice, where can they find that on the internet? You can swing over to deadlantern.com and check out the uh, Dead Lantern podcast, which is still going strong after I don't know how many years of A us. Yeah, since since early, late 99-ish. Uh, so, yeah, that's that still happens. Um you can uh, go on Etsy and visit Muffin Spank. Occasionally, I'll have stuff up there. Um, I've been pretty sparse since I've been working really hard on like building decks and and awnings and Jeez. and that Wild. that kind of crap. But uh, I'll, I'll get back to it as as the temperature ramps up and I'm forced, forced back to be inside. indoor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so look for more of that. Rachel, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Zombie Girls Podcast, review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can find me on Stream Queens, review horror films uh, that you can stream on the internet. You can find me on More Deadly, where we review horror films that are directed exclusively by women-identified directors. And we have an upcoming guest spot. I'm thinking this will be out after they've announced it. Fingers crossed. We're going to be, myself and Ariel from More Deadly are going to be guesting on an episode of Plug It Up, which is a podcast about monstrous menstruation. So I'm sure DJ will be the first (laughs) to download it. (laughs) Well, we're specifically in movies. So something, for instance, one of the most iconic monstrous menstruation films is one by Stephen King, Carrie. So I think that was actually their very first episode was about Carrie. So um, I'm not going to, in case they I do beat them to the announcement. I won't say what we're reviewing, but uh, check out Plug It Up. It's a really, really great podcast if you want to hear about Monstrous Menstruation, which I do. <laughs> All right, DJ, take us out. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode of Cast of Ka, where no puppies were sacrificed for the ending of this show. All of them are cute, and they are all in the Discord, so come see them alive. Yes. Trust me, they are all alive. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the extended episode. This edition is called What You've Been Reading, because we're going to keep up, catch up on what the other person has been reading, see if we can get some recommendations, that kind of stuff. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. You first, DJ. Tell me something you've been reading. Okay, so I just finished up. Um, are you familiar with who uh, Roman Mars is? I mean, the only Mars I know off the top of my head is my co-host on the Stream Queens, Roman Mars. I'm Googling. So Roman Mars is uh, um, a oh. podcaster from uh, the Bay Area, actually. 
Oh. I think uh, their studio is based in Oakland. And he oh, runs the podcast. 99% Invisible. Oh. Yep. He runs the podcast, 99% uh, Invisible. And 99PI is like a um, basically like a, sort of a structural and design um, podcast where he just picks like one topic or one building or one uh, structure in a neighborhood like like urban militarization where they like make it so you can't sleep on park benches and stuff like that or like why a structure ended up the way it is or the fact that chicago's rivers were reversed in like the 17 and 8 or in the 18 and 1900s by like basically changing the pitch of the entire city and just moving entire buildings around and so he released a book called uh 99 invisible city and it's a really great book that covers like minute design concepts that are in everyday items around you in the cities and towns that you live that once you know about them, you can't unsee. Oh, interesting. And it's, it's a pretty decent sized book. If you listen to the audio book, I think it's about like uh nine and a half, 10 hours, but like a good example. Um, if you, next time you see a street sign in the, uh, at the corner, like a stop sign or whatever, glance down to the bottom and you'll notice that there's like some extra nuts and bolts down there. They don't seem like they, they should be necessary. Okay. And you, you look at that and you're like, well, that's weird. Why didn't they just go straight into the concrete? Well, it turns out that pouring concrete's kind of a pain in the ass. Right. And, and so almost every light pole and structure is designed with a breakaway bottom so that if you run into it with a car or hit it with some other object, it breaks off on purpose at the oh. base, and they can reuse the base to mount another sign. Right. This goes another level deep when you realize that some of them have certain types of bases, and they're based on the idea that if you hit it with your car, they want the sign to break off in a manner that causes it to fly over your vehicle instead of into and through your vehicle so the bolts and or the tearaways are set up in a manner that the first ones to go are the front ones instead of the back ones which gives the back ones a little more holding power and causes the sign to like flip up into the air and go over your vehicle and land on the other side so once you know that you go watch some like people hitting signs on youtube and like you'll see the sign like gracefully flies over the car well, it's designed specifically to do that. And that's like, once you know that, you don't unknow it. It's yeah, it's, it's amazing. And then you you go around your city and you just start looking at the bottoms of stuff. And you're like, fuck, this is everywhere. This is everywhere. <laughs> that's so interesting. So here's the thing. Is I'm super interested in, in scientific things. Like when you tell me these stories or tell me this information, I absorb it. I love it. I love being that nerd that has a new fun fact that I can then pass on. I tend to avoid science books, though, because I am worried that it's going to be dry. How is – and I will zone out. I will because I have a very short attention span. So how does this thing read? Uh, this is more like science adjacent. Okay. So as opposed to being like, here's the physics behind this and here's what the tearaway threshold is for this type of bulk. Yeah. It's more like, um, hey, did you ever wonder – right about this thing and like let me tell you something really interesting and then like 
basically they're like, and now on to something completely different. <laughs>